Well, hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast, and I'm with an old friend of mine whom I've known for 20 years, we realised yesterday. We're here in Santa Barbara at the Hotel Upham, and I'm with Teja Sweeney-Ganti. Teja, how are you? Good, Toby. It's really great to see you again after so many years. It is a long time. When will we last have been together, do you think? Sometime in the early 2000s. Yeah, so... My God, at least 10 years. Now, I've already done what is normally the post-production on these things. And uh, so I downloaded from Google Images, our dear friend, um, a picture of you and also the cover of a rather remarkable book. And I wondered if you would just tell us about this rather remarkable book. Uh, It's this one. Yes. (laughs) Sure, I'd love to. Uh, The book is Producing Bollywood Inside the Contemporary Hindi Film Industry, and it's really an ethnography of the Bombay film industry Mm. uh, that really looks at the transformations that the industry underwent over a 10-year period, um, really looking at uh, from the beginning of the coming of satellite television mm-hmm. to the coming of multiplex theaters and how that mm-hmm. altered the media landscape in India and how the film industry really um, responded to those mm-hmm. changes in the media mm-hmm. landscape mm-hmm. Um, as well as very specific changes in the political economy of the film industry because mm-hmm. of changes in state policy having to do with what is referred to in India as the economic liberalization policies that were instituted. Mm-hmm in the early 90s. I mean, that's the kind of macro frame Mm -hmm. of the book. Mm -hmm. But as an anthropologist, uh, I was very interested in the social world of the film industry itself and the social practices of production. And my focus was really on the filmmakers themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I say filmmakers, I'm using that category broadly to uh, refer to all of the people involved in the kind of creative process or mm-hmm. also the kind of financing process. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it, it's also at one level, it has that macro scale of looking at this industry broadly, but also it's very much about um, the everyday life of this industry, about people, their aspirations, what, and very much about what filmmakers think they're doing, um, their own desires, for a particular type of respectable status, mm. uh, their own um, kind of global ambitions to mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. Uh, seen as an internationally successful film industry. So it mm. actually moves back and forth between a large scale, uh, kind of larger social political context to kind of the very micro practices of actually even film production, like what is life like on a set, how is the industry organized in terms of its networks and social relationships, uh, how they manage risk. I remember years yeah. ago you were telling me at some point about the heat on the set. Yes, yes. I don't know if that's still the case. Do you remember those days? Yes, when I there do was remember no air those days. I remember those days. And I you were in those I was studios. in those studios. And <laughs> it's funny, I mean, things have improved somewhat. Uh, now. particular hierarchies within the film industry uh, get manifest, I mean, the way people experience those working conditions are very much marked by who they are within within the hierarchies of the industry. So I actually talk about how um, it's really hard to find a bathroom. So the people who, so who gets to, who has access to decent bathrooms Mm. are the stars and perhaps, you know, directors and producers, but all the other workers, uh, the background dancers, uh, you know, they have to somehow 
make do with very little. Uh, and if and if you're a woman, it's actually very difficult. You know, the men just you know, they it's easier for them. They can just go wherever they like. <laughs> but for the women, it's, a, it's actually a real issue. And that was something I mentioned briefly in the book about how there was actually organizing on the part of the uh, the particular trade unions within the industry saying, like, we need better facilities. That's not necessarily been taken care of so well. So, or who gets to be shaded from the sun? You know, stars. So, yeah, so there's a way that the the particular yes. social space Hola, social space of the film production uh, really gives you an insight into the particular hierarchies, or who gets to sit in the chair, who gets to sit down. I worked as an assistant director. If you're an assistant, you never get to sit down. Like you would never be. You you can kind of lean against a wall, perch on something, but you never sit down in front of your. And this isn't just office. about the cost of chairs or plumbing. It is about hierarchy. I think so. I think mm. so. Or also the idea that, um, I mean, one of the things, I think that is quite, um, people do notice about the film industry, Hindi film industry, is that the tremendous focus on stars. It's an extremely star-centric mm -hmm. industry. And people mm -hmm. talk about that usually in terms of how films get greenlit or how many, you know, what kinds of budgets or how much stars get paid. But I found that it actually manifested itself in all these other ways where so much of the material resources are going towards a very small number of people mm -hmm. that these would be ways, these would be ways, you know, um, that that the industry's uh, own hierarchies become mm. may become really palpable because yeah. now the stars get these nice trailer vans because the makeup rooms in all these studios are in really abysmal in these conditions. conditions. I was very interested the other day to see that in Britain, one of the major museums is going through a planned overhaul architecturally. And one of the first things that's been announced is that the attendants in the museum, who unusually in the recent past have had stools to sit on, will no longer have such seating facilities because there won't be room. <laughs> yes, yeah, so those things, these things are terribly interesting and terribly important, I think. There's no doubt about it. All right, getting back to some of the other things you mentioned, like economic liberalization or neoliberalism in India, whatever we call it. What sorts of changes have you witnessed over the many years now, well over a decade, that you've been engaging in participant observation of the well, industry? The, well, the thing that I'm struck by, which kind of counters, I think, common understandings mm -hmm. of neoliberalism, perhaps, is that the Hindi film industry, I think, actually and overall benefited very um, directly, I would say, or directly and indirectly from the kinds of uh, economic policy changes that came about mm. um, with, because of structural adjustment and liberalization. Mm. Uh, and what's also interesting is that for the longest time, this was an industry that had always been viewed with tremendous ambivalence on the part of the Indian state. It was something, and especially any kind of, so the, from a, earlier developmentalist ideology that, well, you know, media, filmmaking needs to be done for social uplift and the idea that entertainment perhaps is something that India as a developing nation really couldn't afford mm. and that the film industry was always exhorted to, you know, do this work of like some type of mm. social service. Mm. But, and hence there was always this, uh, um, this um, kind of, fractious relationship mm -hmm. between the industry and the state, uh, usually 
manifest through the kind of very high taxation policies that 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 you know that the state in, imposed on the film filmmaking process at various levels. But I found in from starting from the late '90s and especially in the early 2000s is that the whole relationship, the whole nature of thinking about filmmaking mm. changed from mm. something like here's this potential medium for development and social uplift to wow, this is actually a really important sphere of economic activity and we should uh, so the very the very industry that was castigated for mm. for uh, making those frivolous films was suddenly like look we have this amazing uh, completely indigenously uh, indigenous industry that has somehow withstood the onslaught of Hollywood and that is popular domestically and brings in and, and earnings brings in earnings exports. exactly right so suddenly mm. the, the idea of it mm. being and it, people started moving from the language of filmmaking and cinema to the entertainment industry. And in mm. fact, I think in state mm. discourses, the notion of the industry being mm. an industry that can garner uh, revenue mm. uh, was something, so that you see this real shift in state attitudes. And so I think that was quite, um, that was quite remarkable that I, I was able to kind of mm. witness that over the time span of my own ethnography and so in that process what that did was it, the industry and filmmaking itself got a type of respectability even a social respectability but also a type of cultural legitimacy from the point of view of the state as well as these big bodies what known as uh, the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry so that suddenly and also this notion of the industry status that happened actually that you know before 1998 filmmaking was not seen as an industry and it, there's something very specific about what it means to be an industry in the Indian context. Um, and there was an act, there was actually a, a status that was given to filmmaking, which then made uh, filmmakers eligible for loans from institutional from banks and institutional mm -hmm. finance. All of that was made possible because of these changing state attitudes, as well as the fact that new entrants into uh, filmmaking, uh, corporate corporate corporations. Um, established Indian industrial houses started setting up media divisions, which mm. all happens really uh, in the early 2000s after the status is given. So it's one of these things where the state becomes an assistant yes. after the fact of economic legitimacy. Yes. Whereas normally the idea is the state's there as a pump primer for yeah. cultural activity, which will then eventually stand alone. Yes. So it's the recto verso yes. that norm. What does it imply for people who are auteur filmmakers, who are in the avant-garde, who are doing what was traditionally regarded as sure. culturally appropriate sure, filmmaking? Sure, sure. Actually, interestingly, another development which could not be anticipated, and again, it turns certain, I think, conventional understandings based on U.S. examples on its mm -hmm. head, is that what also happens in the early 2000s is that the exhibition infrastructure goes through a dramatic uh, change because of the coming, coming of multiplexes, mm. and usually we think of multiplexes in the in the U.S. as these large monstrosities that kind of, that really produce a certain kind of blockbuster and homogenous cinema. In the Indian context, what happened initially was that actually multiplexes were seen as a way of fostering alternative mm. filmmaking styles because the auditoria were much smaller. And so the idea that you could try to 
um, just maybe attract 200 or 300 people to a film versus 2,000, which is what the old cinema halls mm. used anywhere between 1,500 to 2,000 seats. Mm. So what the multi, the coming of multiplexes did is it actually made the distribution and financing sector uh, be willing to take a chance on filmmakers who were not so interested in, uh, who were actually interested in, in the. Um, making films that were not the kind of mainstream. Well, and in fact, this was the way in which the multiplexes in the United States got their positioning in the first place. Ah. That was what they promised oh, they I would see. do. Oh, I see. They promised that. That's interesting. That's why yeah. they got very, very favorable deals ah. from the various local governments. That's interesting. Because they claimed they would not do what, what in fact, they did, which sure. is to show two films in eight different theaters, sure. some of them with... 300 people in yeah. there, some of them with five. Sure, sure. Other than on a Saturday morning to rent one out to sure, a South sure. Asian community. Which is, but they, yeah. were, they were going to allow yeah. documentaries, the Apple sure. you name it, based on just this model. Which is interesting is that in the Indian context, I mean, what's happening now, I feel mm. like now it's much harder for people. For this very thing is happening, I think, in the Indian context as well. Where mm. what, Because what also happened, I mean, the multiplexes, because they were newer, uh, they were more lavish and just uh, very nice facilities that mm -hmm. everyone wanted to show their films mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. those very nice uh, mm -hmm. theaters. And also the in this and these various state governments, because these are all at the level of state governments that these policies are happening in terms of exhibition infrastructure. They were you, there were all kinds of tax breaks given to the construction of multiplexes. Uh, whereas the single-screen cinemas who would like to upgrade their facilities were not given any kinds of tax breaks. So definitely mm. there, was, um, there was a kind of discrepancy in inequality vis-à-vis uh, -vis the exhibition infrastructure. And usually in the Indian context, how the multiplex, uh, the multiplex SOPs were articulated were in terms of tourism and bringing in... Uh, because multiplexes was al were always connected to malls. So mm. that's the other part of it. The change in the landscape, mm -hmm. in the urban landscape in India, is that the multiplexes and malls went hand in hand. You've never had a mall without a multiplex. You never, you rarely had a multiplex that was not connected to a mall. So it's part of this larger mm -hmm. consumerist dispensation that the Indian government was mm -hmm. promoting as a, as an idea around this is what's this is what is our new kind of economic model that you know trying to promote middle class consumption. Um, and I feel like nowadays when I speak to filmmakers. They do, the people who are in that kind of, they like to think of themselves as independent, as alternative, people who are not interested in making a mainstream Hindi film, they do, they do feel that they're being, they're being marginalized in the multiplexes. And I, and I actually uh, talk about that in the book because when I spoke to exhibitors, they would say, well, we have, if we have a huge blockbuster with you know, yeah. big stars and a highly anticipated film, of course we're going to give over our five screens mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, and well, yes, we will schedule maybe that non-Hindi film or that small film in the 10 a.m. or the 11 o'clock at night space. And I, and I see that every time I go to Bombay. I, yes. You know, there's certain films that it's, maybe they're only playing in one theater. They're now, not getting the same release. I wonder if you could contrast your work with some of the other academics who've written about Bollywood. Mm -hmm. Obviously, your work's much better than all of theirs together. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm just thinking of the fact that in the Anglo publishing sphere mm -hmm. over the last 15 years, there have been, if not dozens, then 
maybe there have been 20, 25, maybe more books, would you say? That Probably. Have Bollywood in the title. Well, I don't know if Bollywood in the title, but definitely about... Yeah. What, what would be your accounting for those different books? I'm not asking you to go through them one by sure. one. Sure. By contrast, say, with what you do in yours. Um, I think the biggest difference between... I mean, I'm so happy that there's all this work now. I remember mm. when I first started... As a graduate student, there was not that much written about Indian so cinema Sumita generally. So Sumita Chakrabarti's book yeah, would yeah. have been just about the first one. I in think so. English. Yeah, it came out. Yeah, I mean, no, there may have been. There would have been some others earlier, mm. but that made um, that I think was published by U.S. U.S. Uh, Press. Would, Sumita's mm. perhaps is one of the earliest ones. Right. Um, yeah. But I think um, one, I'm really happy for the explosion of work, of work around uh, Hindi cinema and Indian cinema generally, and. What I think, um, I mean, I guess the way I would distinguish my work from the others is that because I'm, a, I'm coming at it as an anthropologist, I'm very much interested. Much of my work is really not about the films. Mm. Um, the films are there as these kind of discursive social objects that have meaning for the filmmakers mm. um, mm -hmm. and like members of the industry. But my focus is really on the filmmakers themselves um, and I really am interested in the subjectivities of filmmakers mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so and it's also very much about the industry mm -hmm. as a space of work but as also this particular social world so I think that's really I, I mean in a nutshell that's how I would describe the difference um, and I know now more people are looking at production um, but again my focus on production really also has to do with not just what is happening, but also very much um, the kind of dis discursive representations. I mean, how filmmakers mm -hmm. represent what they're doing mm -hmm. um, and uh, the kind of ideologies behind filmmaking and how that's articulated. In one sense, I mean, and then, you know, it's kind of, I like Bourdieu's idea of the field. And, you know, so I really think I'm looking at the Hindi film industry as this particular field. And you know, there's these all these different forms of capital that are that are put into play. So mm. I think that I mean, mm. I think that's how I would de 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 describe my difference. One of the things that I encountered over a dozen years ago in India was anxiety on the part of some folks that the power, in terms of numbers and money and interests, of non-resident Indians or persons mm -hmm. of Indian origins. Over the content of yes, Bollywood yes, yes. was changing it yes, yes. and alienating it from the domestic population. Yes, that's uh, that's a really strong narrative uh, that even today I think exists. Although it was much stronger in the early two thousands, and I actually discussed that a little bit in the book. I mean, I, what I find interesting is that because. Filmmaking, any type of filmmaking, but especially when you're making film for millions or say billions of people, you don't have any kind of actual immediate access to your audience, right? So that's what I find fascinating is like how filmmakers then have to project their their and their they project their anxieties, their desires, but also you know they kind of have to make these they have to kind of create these ideas about the audience and what they think audiences are about and everything based on a lot of hindsight and very imperfect analysis and what i found quite interesting is that i think filmmakers always need some type of scapegoat 
as a way to rationalize how, as a way to kind of make sense of the un tremendous uncertainty, which is the other mm. actually aspect that I like. I really focus on mm. is the tremendous uncertainty that filmmakers have to deal with, and so the audience becomes this really important locus of uncertainty because the audience is always mm. unpredictable, and so then there are these type. I feel like there are these certain discourses that come into play. So one what discourse was the audience about the Indian audience, you know, they're the masses, meaning they're the kind of poor working class who are so different from filmmakers, but the filmmakers feel like they have to cater, you know, that, that was that was their anxiety initially as well as what they thought was their problem. Like we have to cater to these poor lowest working, common denominator. Lowest common denominator. This is why our films are like this. Yeah. And then there's a shift we have to cater to the NRI, the diaspora, and this is why our films like that. Yeah, the, this is why our films are like this, and it's interesting. So there's like, so I feel like these are the two kind of uh, these poles of these audience fictions or audience um, yeah, yeah. constructs that filmmakers are always dealing with. And what's interesting is that for the filmmakers who especially criticize the diaspora audience for their terrible taste or whatever are the ones who are trying to they're also the ones who feel more marginalized within the larger structures of the film industry and so it becomes their way of having to deal with the fact that well maybe you know I'm not getting the kind of finances and resources but having said that I feel that there's actually the last few years there's been this kind of resurgence of the quote local or of a certain kind of representation of India in the films, where there are all these filmmakers who are not from Bombay, who wear their kind of badge of like, I'm from, you know, I'm from the Hindi-speaking North, or I'm from these hinterlands, that, from the point of view of Bombay, and they actually wear, you know, they wear that badge really proudly, and they really uh, use it as a, as a symbol of authenticity, and say, we are making films for, for people in India, except that I find that usually they're the ones who are most celebrated internationally because they're offering themselves up as these edgy, alternative, authentic indie filmmakers. Right? Indie Hindi. Indie Hindi, yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, I wondered if I could ask you, Teja, about the way in which some of these films are watched. Yeah. Even though your focus is more on production, and you've already problematized the idea of a material empirical audience, but amongst the NRIs and Indian inhabitants that I know, who are intellectuals of the middle class, all of you watch these films and enjoy them in a kind of ironic, sometimes sardonic way, that it seems to me is akin to some of the debates about kitsch and sure. the pleasure of sure. kitsch. Yeah. yeah. Is that reasonable? Do you think that, that is a viewing practice or am I imposing that category? I, I think maybe for some people, I don't watch them in an ironic <coughs> I watch them fully engaged and like with full, um, you know, I I mean, I have been watching these films from the time I can remember, ever since I can remember cinema, there has been Hindi films in my life right. and I, I am, yeah, so I don't, I don't um, actually have that type of viewing relationship. I feel like maybe perhaps um, some of my scholarly peers do uh, but I think for most of I think for within the diaspora I think most of uh, the, the kind of viewing relationship is not that but sort wait, of so when it you is talk, of lots of pleasure <laughs> so when you talk to the filmmakers yeah who sound as though they wish they were making other kinds yes, of movies yes your part of the problem 
Yeah, yes. You are the grubby, low-middle-class yes. diaspora. Yes, yes, I am. I think I, they have told me that. <laughs> oh, they've made you clear about this but in no uncertain in, in, language. In the sense that, like, you know, when I say, but I love, you know, my, I mean, my big peeve with them is that tremendous, and I write about this. I mean, I actually talk, in the book, I say there's two, uh, two main facets of the production culture of the Hindi film industry is disdain and uncertainty. So, and I say disdain and uncertainty completely, to me, structure the production culture of this industry. And the disdain is the tremendous disdain that they have for their own work, as well as for their audiences, as well as for their peers in terms of the structure of the industry. And the uncertainty is how they're trying to manage, you know, manage that. Um, and what I always found quite amazing is that mo many of the filmmakers I met and spent a lot of time with when I was doing field work is they really wish they could make films without songs. They just were at a wit's end about the songs. And I would say, like, but I love the songs. I think the songs are the best part, you know? Um, so, yeah, so they would always... And I said, you know, you don't realize the songs are what are making you all circulate in all kinds of spaces that you never imagined, whether it's in Africa or South America. So, yes, they... Um, so, so it's interesting. I mean, we, we, at this point now, I have interesting... Uh, discussions or arguments with my filmmaker friends, which I may not have done when I was when I first began because I was too I, I was too nervous to express my fandom. Fandom, yes. I really love your work. Well, I don't. I think it's crap. It's because of fucking people like you. Hola Juan. Muy bien, muy bien. Let me ask you about a different audience for your work, and that is anthropologists. Mm -hmm. What's the story like for? Ethnographers of the media these days sure. within US anthropology and anthropology more generally, because sure. it used to be said that you folks were slightly marginal mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you were anybody who studied the middle class sure. and intellectuals, sure. but especially people working on media work sure. sure. was going to be slightly marginal. Sure. I think I think it's definitely improved, but I do feel that the kind of huge wave of interest in media, I don't think it ever came in anthropology. We all were thinking it would, and we felt that there was a promise of that. And, the, and what I based that statement on is on in, in terms of when I look at the job market within anthropology, right? That's so I'm so I'm basing it on very kind of concrete indicators of like when you look at the job the job ads in our main. Um, Discipline, you know, in the Anthropology Association job listings, the job listings, the triple A's. You know, I never saw that huge wave of interest in like we are looking for someone who can, who is an anthropologist of media. We're looking for someone who can teach about media. A few, but never the large um, kind of torrent of possibilities that we imagined would happen. Well, it, there are these so-called four fields in the United yes. States, and it really only fits into one of them, I guess. Although arguably you could put it into linguistic as well as sure, sure, and there are and there are you know. But uh, it isn't physical. No, it isn't physical or, or archaeology. But I feel like most of the and but that it's not really about the four field approach. I would say um, it's really about the particular um, predilections and interests of cultural anthropology as a whole within the U you know, U.S. And I think part of it has to do with what you were just mentioning, which is even though there's been a lot of discussion about it's important to study elites, it's important to study up. The Laura Nader formulation. Yes, which, you know, was from a long time ago. I think there's still a tendency, a skepticism about 
uh, the study of about the study of elites, and it's not just the skepticism, but it's also I mean, it's it's more it's more difficult to do, right? Issues of access, um, and so I think that I think part of it has to do with the. I mean, we are a discipline that has been most identified with the other, with the marginal, right? And so I think. Um, uh, trying to, I mean, it's, I think this, I think I think these are some of the factors that continue to keep. Um, I mean, I won't say I don't. I wouldn't say that we're completely marginalized, but I feel like it's never been as large a part of the discipline as I thought it would be. And you know, again, looking at even a AAA panels. Um, hmm. right, so the number of panels. What about less. on the other side of things? You're here at a, a conference that seems to be dominated numerically by people who are humanities-based media mm -hmm. studies faculty, whereas you are a social scientist in a field where the media are quite marginal. So what's it like being in this other camp, and what do you think about the amateur ethnography undertaken by communication studies people. Oh, oh, oh. No, what? Wow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sharpens her claws, ready to attack. No, I think, um, I mean, one, it's great to be among uh, colleagues who are looking at similar types of, uh, I mean, like a, a similar type of objects, let's mm. put it way. I think the questions maybe, I mean, and I think there's similar types of questions being asked, mm. but you're right, I think the method, the method is different. Um, and I think, and I actually have written about this for the, for the upcoming the media industry's journal kind of launch that that's happening soon, um, so I've actually written about the value of ethnography in studying media, and I feel like, and this was something that's been discussed for a while now. I think from the '90s about how ethnography, the word ethnography, gets used um, very fast and loose, uh, and I'm always telling students ethnography is not just about talking to people. And I think and I think um, that's often I think it's understood I think in many fields as well. If you talk to a few people, you've done ethnography. This is how classically sociology and ethnography differ yes. from anthropology. Yes, because because I, well, I'm always pointing out that ethnography is really also about um, it's about observation. It's it's about actually paying attention to all types of little details. It's what Malinowski referred to as the imponderabilia of everyday life. Um, those little details, uh, and, it's the, and I think there's something to be had about spending time in the place for a while because you start to pay, you start to notice certain patterns that if you came in only for a short time, you may not notice or you may not think are remarkable, or, if, or they may seem remarkable, but they not, may not actually be if you spend mm -hmm. long enough time. So I feel like that's, um, that's what I, uh, I, feel that, I feel like that those are the kinds of uh, questions that you can ask certain kinds of questions mm -hmm. if you've spent enough time in a place and gotten to know people enough to be able to go beyond, also to be able to go beyond their own representations of so, their work. What does this mean? What does this imply for, for example, online ethnography? Ah, yes, that's a that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't, I don't know what I think about online ethnography yet. I know people have been talking about it. There's uh, discussions about it on, say, the Media Anthropology Listserv. There are handbooks now to do digital ethnography, but um, I think. I think it depends really on what are the kinds of questions people are asking about 
these online interfaces. Um, but I and I I feel and I I don't want to fetishize some on offline online distinction, but it seems to me that. It, it is, I mean, one can get at certain types of questions or information by spending a lot of time looking at what people have been writing or posting or what have you. But I feel like, you know, it, 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 can, the questions may be constrained by that. And how do you know that, that the gay Iranian woman isn't a white guy in New Hampshire? Yeah, exactly. We don't. Right. And it only, I guess it only matters, though, if you're concerned about other questions around how people are. I mean, if you're concerned about how people are trying to project themselves in a particular way, you wouldn't know whether it's a projection no, or not. No, but if yeah. you're studying the yeah. Bombay film industry yeah. and you're doing it online, it might oh, help yeah. to know that the people you're yeah. reading are actually in Bombay yeah. <laughs> and are involved in the film yeah, industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, can, I, couldn't, yes, I couldn't see myself doing online ethnography yeah. of, these of the yeah. kinds of topics yeah. that I'm interested in. Now, I happen to know, because you told me yesterday, yes. that you've got an upcoming essay uh, on neoliberalism. Yes. Thorny term, yes. complicated concept, and of course India in the forefront of it in many ways. So I wondered if you could share some of your insights, because this is one of these Olympian summative pieces, a meta Yes. A piece about pieces, yes. as it were, that you've produced. So I'm quite excited. If, if you would give us a five-minute blast on that. Oh, dear. Okay, yes. Can you remember what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I do. <laughs> yes, I, so I wrote this annual review of anthropology essay about neoliberalism. And the, I actually wanted to write this because I found that this term uh, had become so pervasive, mm. not just generally, but within anthropology, within anthropological scholarship. And it was so pervasive that I really wanted, and I it wasn't, and it meant, it seemed to mean so many different things. So I wanted to try to understand for myself what this term was, what was it signifying, and also how was it being used by by my discipline. And so what I ended up writing was really part history of how this um, particular, it's a particular political philosophy, political economic mm -hmm. philosophy, how it, uh, how it gets articulated. So a little mm -hmm. history of how this idea comes to, you know, comes to be, as well as categorizing anthropology's really, anthropology's use of the term. And what's interesting, mm -hmm. I feel like most anthropologists don't really, are not really aware of the history of how neoliberalism, the, the idea, the mm -hmm. ideology gets uh, developed, which you know, really, but very much is a particular. It's a particular historical moment. Mm -hmm. It's you know uh, between interwar Europe. Mm -hmm. It's also about particular um, people's kind of anxiety about socialism and about collective, you know, about uh, collectivizing the economy. So it ha it comes from a very specific mm -hmm. time and place, and I wanted to. Uh, not necessarily to foreground it, but I wanted to address that because mm. I feel like it's always important to know like where, you know, and it, because it's become such a dominant concept, mm. I thought it would be useful for people to know where it actually, you know, comes from and what it, what its context of its production was in terms of, uh, of an ideology and you know, as a philosophy. Mm. Mm. And then the rest of it's really like thinking about how anthropologists have, have utilized this concept. And, it, and what's interesting is that it's it's a type of term that I think I talk about why it's so attractive 
for anthropologists. And I think it's because it's able to index the kind of large macro, uh, the kind of political economy or the idea of the global in mm -hmm. a way that, you know, I think anthropologists have always been in this, um, I've always had this kind of anxiety that the work we do because it's so local rooted, local life worlds that we've often been accused of not paying attention to the big picture. Like how, you know, how do these local lives, like, you know, what is, what is the relationship to kind of larger, uh, you know, political economic processes. Mm. And that's, a, that's been a longstanding uh, interplay tension that, you know, has marked the field for a mm -hmm. long time. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, so I feel like neoliberalism became this way for people to mark something more macro, as well as <laughs> under that umbrella, you could put in, and also people were able to do a kind of cross-cultural comparison, which is also part of the so part one kind of uh, way that the field has always, you know, thought of itself about. So they was able to do that, but then I also talk about what are the kinds of problems with the term. And one of the, one of the things I realized that what, when anthropologists use neoliberalism so ex so uh, prolifically, there's certain there's certain opposite uh, implicit oppositions that get set mm -hmm. up, which is mm -hmm. suddenly the state seems to be the savior. I mean, it's not necessarily post-explicit, but this, you know, there's a certain kind of time that is in the there's a certain golden age or somehow that's implied in the kind of uh, in the oppositions against the state and community. And community is a pretty um, off on fucking screen. <laughs> no, but you know, I mean, and again, it's what I'm saying. It's it's implicit. But I'm, so mm -hmm. I was kind of looking at sure, what sure. what these um, these implicit oppositions these are lost, being, beautiful, non-individualistic, non-corporate yes, eras that we were, allegedly occupied that were so wonderful. Yes, I mean that kind of almost yeah. sets up. And also, there's yeah. certain things that don't get questioned, like the market doesn't get doesn't get disaggregated yeah, or, yeah. or interrogated yeah, the yeah. market doesn't sure. uh, entrepreneur you know so I try to mm. I try to mm. raise those questions mm. in the piece so that's um, so you're in a pulling apart sloganeering in a way it's interesting isn't it anthropologists have one thing in common when they do ethnography write-ups which is they always begin with a story yes. I mean I think you begin with yes. a story in, yes. in much of your work yes so there's a little story and that's great. It's like the beginning of a James Bond movie. <laughs> yes. There's a film within a film. So you think, okay, we've had all this exciting stuff, and I know that this is meant to imply many, many things that will yes. then get alluded to later on. Yes. A bit like the way the New York Times journalism requires yes. that if you're writing about climate change, you have to talk about Jimmy and Johnny and sure. their playground. Yes. And what's yes. happening to it. Yes. And what their parents think about this. Yes. Right? This yes. is obligatory. So you're not allowed, actually, to begin with what the fucking subject is. You have to have a little story. Right? Now, I get this, and I like it. I'm yeah. in favor of this. <laughs> but it does mean some of us are thinking, get to the point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because this, I want to know what the larger story is. Sure. Conversely, of course, many of the debates undertaken in the name of the larger story fail utterly to bring that down to a manageable yes. level, where you think, well, okay, I'm fascinated by these ideas about world systems theory, yes. or these ideas about the function of pricing in the setting of markets. But what does it mean for Jimmy and Johnny on yes. the playground? Yes. And that dialectic, that dynamic between these levels is something that obviously has consumed much of social science yes. forever and ever. It never really goes away, does no, it? No, no, it doesn't. 
And it's interesting that you bring up journalism and the parallels with journalism because there's actually a lot of parallels between anthropology, anthropologists and journalists, mm. which is probably why anthropologists are often very ambivalent about journalists and, you know, express tremendous anxiety and sometimes say that was very journalistic as a way of, as a way of, uh, yeah, criticizing. Um, mm. So, but I think there's, you're right. I mean, I think it is the desire to try to, conjure up a particular world. Mm. I mean, in that sense, it's also very, you know, similar to fiction writing in one sense, right? I mean, an ethnography, mm. I mean, in my mind, or a good ethnography has to conjure up that particular mm. world for sure. the reader and, and, make the, and immerse the reader in that particular world to kind of really give a sense of what it, what it must have been like mm. to be there. And mm. I think, mm. um, so not that we necessarily succeed doing that all the time, but I think that's, Part of um, part of the goal, and I think that's what Malinowski called the ethnographer's magic, right? About being able to call into a world into being for the reader, and so I think that's that's where that opening anecdote or trying to you mm. know place people in is. I think it's it's about that. And um, and so as you're saying, it's not just a trope that's required or a yeah, generic no. maneuver. Yeah, it no. is truly valuable and in fact quite constitutive. I think so. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, Teja, because we've got the bus coming, we're going to have to cut it there. Thank you so much oh, for coming into the pod. And very quickly, tell me what's on the horizon for you for your next plan so we can then lure you to return sure, to the pod sure. once that's born fruit. Sure. Well, I'm doing uh, two new projects, mm. uh, long-term projects. One is actually looking at film schools and film training in India. And mm. this came about because uh, a very prominent Bombay filmmaker – decided to set up a film school in Bombay mm. where he felt that he wanted to try to professionalize and formalize the industry in particular ways because uh -huh. he himself is actually a graduate from the National Film School, the, oh, the Film and Television this? Institute of India, uh, Subhashikai. Mm -hmm. So he started a school called Whistling Woods in Bombay. And so I've been spending time in Whistling Woods okay. doing field work there. I'm really curious to see, like, what is the process? How do you take something... The Bombay film industry has been so experiential, mm, informal, mm, tacit, mm, you know, take all mm, of this knowledge mm, that mm. is really transmitted, you know, by, uh, by experience, by apprenticeship and like put it in a classroom. What is, the, yeah, yeah. what is the process, right. you know, and how does it, how do you teach how to make a mainstream yeah. Hindi film? So that's yeah. one yep. big project um, and that's going to take a while. And the other project is really, um, I typify this, I, I call it the everyday life of multilingualism in India. And the, the film industry, the Hindi film industry, is actually an amazing site to look at questions. Oh, and your paper uh, for this And my paper for this conference is based on that. So I'm really yeah. interested in... Uh, well, lots of people communicate in English, and some of them yes. are not that competent in Hindi. Exactly. And I'm fascinated by the relationship between these languages, but also the, the, mm. the, con, the varying acts of translation that are part of being yeah. in this industry. And I feel like I can contribute to larger discussions about language in India by looking at the film industry through this lens. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Teja, and you'll definitely be lured back. <laughs> Thank you, Toby. <laughs> it's wonderful to talk to you.